Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wild Card Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, April 4th, and we're talking about the industry powering the digital revolution. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and you're actually not going to be hearing much from me today. We put out a lot of content here at The Fool, and every now and then I'll hear a conversation and think, this is darn good. We've got to get this in front of as many people as possible. On today's show, we're going to be airing a conversation between analysts John Rattanti and Jason Hall, breaking down the semiconductor industry. It originated in our Discovery Now premium live stream and then later made its way into Motley Fool Live, our U.S. member live stream. It's a fantastic overview of the industry, the shortage that's been collecting headlines, and why this space is full of so many stellar businesses. Think of it as a little sneak peek for non-members and a reminder for all of our members that there are some awesome conversations happening over at live.fool.com. Without any further ado, enjoy. So before we talk about our show today, which is going to be focused on the semiconductor industry and what's going on there, I think it'd be great if you could just spend a couple of minutes talking about what you do for The Fool and, and what, you, what you enjoy the most about the things that you do. Thank you, Jason. Yes. Yeah, so I'm a senior analyst. I've been at The Fool for seven years now, and um, I'm the head of investor training and development. In that role, I um, teach a lot of classes to our new analysts. That's one thing I do. In that role, I also serve as a resource across our investing team. So if, if any member of our investing team is looking for an article or even maybe some Wall Street research on a particular company or a model on a company, I may be able to help them with that. Third thing I do is I bring in outside uh, guest speakers, uh, practitioners, academics, but all, you know, all superstars in their fields, in their area of expertise to come speak to our team internally, teach us classes, lead discussions. Sometimes I bring in a group of outside speakers and, and, and we host roundtable of panels. And we just get to watch these three or four amazing um, professional money managers have a discussion with each other for an hour and a half. And so that's how I spend my time as a coach. And then I'm the co-host of the morning show on Motley Fool Live and the host of My Investing Life on Motley Fool Live. And then I'm experimenting with another show called Tech 30, where I bring in some guests and interview them for 30 minutes and talk about tech and innovation. Awesome. Well, there's 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 no doubt that tech and innovation, it's the the, the old, uh, the you know, software is eating the world. Um, and the bottom line is that every company that's not using technology in their business is going to lose to their biggest competitor who is. Exactly. So that's awesome. Well, John, again, thank you so much for coming on. And I can tell you that every member, whether they have have listened to you talk about companies that you follow or back when you were working on some of the premium services and providing the analysis that led to recommendations, every single member has benefited from you because of your influence on so many of the other analysts and helping out with coaching and training. So I just want to, for every single member, I want to extend a thank you to you for that. Thank you, Jason. All right, on to today's show. We have a fun topic lined up. Um, one of the, the, the <laughs> law of unintended consequences that's happened recently that's had all kinds of far-reaching implications across all kinds of industries is the semiconductor shortage, right? So, so whether it was coming out of 
COVID and the impact on global supply chain, natural disasters, fires, booming economy, surging demand, the proliferation of, of semiconductors across so many more different types of products than ever. It's an amazing, interesting industry that's kind of in a bit of a disarray in terms of meeting supply, but has so many implications that investors need to understand. John, tell us what we need to know. Yeah, Jason, regarding the shortage, you hit on most of the big ones. Um, I think the biggest reason there's a semiconductor shortage right now, I think, is because of the digital acceleration that was brought on by, by COVID and the subsequent economic lockdown. So um, digital everything and the cloud was growing really fast before the pandemic, but the pandemic accelerated that growth. And, that, and those industries, whether it's software, whether it's hardware, whatever it is in the digital space relies on semiconductors. And so when the digital transformation got accelerated, literally by years um, down into months, the semiconductor manufacturers were already operating at full capacity or near full capacity. And so it, and it takes time to ramp up semiconductor manufacturing. So that's a big thing. They, they, the industry was not ready for this accelerated digital transformation. You mentioned natural disasters. Um, one, one major um, semiconductor fabrication facility was shut down by a fire, another by the deep freeze in Texas. And then a third thing I'll say is um, coming out of recessions or these sort of economic shocks, it's not uncommon to have supply constraints. It right. just so happens this time the supply constraint is showing up in semiconductors because of the, of the digital acceleration we talked about and, and how um, important semiconductors are to everything digital. Yeah, it's a confluence of events, right? There's so many things that have occurred all at the same time that have made what was going to be a tight supply situation even worse. And you hit on something I think is really important to understand and talking about bringing these facilities up to scale and adding more capacity. You know, I think we've all gotten spoiled when we see uh, CrowdStrike report earnings or Zoom report earnings or Shopify where their revenues are up 50% or 100% from period to period. And when you're dealing with software or software as a services or something on the cloud, you can scale up very, very, very quickly. But when you think about building a foundry for, for semiconductors, and a lot of times they're very specialized, right? Making sure that you're building out the right capacity for the right need can be really, really critical. And it does take time. It's very time intensive, very label intensive, very energy intensive. And then there's capital, all the logistics of intensive. the... Oh yeah, it's very power intensive. But then you have the logistics too of the inputs, your feedstocks that you need, and then getting the product out and then getting it distributed to where it needs to go. It's about as old school as it gets. It takes years to build and $10 billion, 10 to $20 billion to build one modern day advanced node semiconductor manufacturing foundry. So the one that comes to mind, um, most uh, immediately on that regard is actually a company that we're not really going to talk much about, but that's Intel, right? This is why the company has, has ear earmarked, you know, these massive, you know, what, $30 billion or so to add capacity in the, maybe it's more than that, but to build out more capacity in North America. Yeah. So if you look at the three largest semiconductor manufacturing uh, companies, Taiwan Semi, 
they're, they're, I guess we should call them found. They're more more accurately called foundries or fabrication facilities. But Taiwan Semi has announced they're going to spend a hundred billion dollars in capex over the next three years. Hundred billion. Samsung that it's going to spend over a hundred billion over the next several years without specifying what what several years means. And then you just said Intel. I I thought it was twenty billion to build two fabs in Arizona, but maybe the number has gone up to thirty. No, I think that last... that sounds that sounds right. But it's a lot. I mean, it's, it's a it, lot. It's a lot. And so just three companies right there, you're looking at well over $200 billion of industry capex in the next few years. That's, that's a lot. It is. It is. And then they're, they're going to have to be regularly spending additional capital costs to modernize, to update, just to stay, just to, just to continue to meet the design expectations. Yep. It's Taiwan Semi is the leader in this. They're currently the only company... Uh, globally at scale, putting out five nanometer chips, which is leading edge chip right now. They're going to, they're going to come up, they're going to open their first three nanometer chip sometime in 2022. That's the, the timeline they've announced so far. So yeah, they're continuing to move, continuing to pr progress and innovate to more advanced uh, chips. So before, before we get into the specific companies, it might be helpful to talk about as you think about the industry um, and as you think about how it's the buckets that the industry is kind of within and the companies that participate in what they do, can you kind of break that down for, for our viewers? I can, um, for sure. So what's remarkable is that um, at every stage of the semiconductor manufacturing value chain, there's like two or three, and in some cases, one global leader. So we're really talking about earned oligopolies, earned duopolies, earned monopolies in some cases, because it, as you said, it's just so capital and knowledge intensive that the barriers to entry are just so high. And so really, uh, if you look at how to make a leading edge five nanometer chip, for example, the first step is, because these chip, these leading edge chips, they have billions of transistors on them and the chips are about the size of a stamp or a thumbnail mm -hmm. um, and so you can't just and when i when i say billions i mean billions the the, the apple m1 chip has 16 billion transistors um amazon the amazon graviton chip has close to 30 billion transistors so tens of billions of transistors you can't just put that together by hand right. you need you need a you need software so the first step is to design the blueprint for that tiny chip and how you're going to fit 20 or 30 billion transistors on it. And there's two global leaders in software that do this design. It's called, it's called EDA software, Electronic Design Automation Software. It's also sometimes referred to as computational design software. Two global market share leaders, Cadence Design Systems and Synopsys. Um, this computational design software, it's, it's highly complicated. It's a mix of matrix algebra, um, artificial intelligence, advanced geometry, and other fields of math that I can't even pronounce or understand. <laughs> it's, it's really that complicated. To work as a software engineer at one of these companies, you have to have a master's or a PhD. It's not just you you take a class in Python or something like that. It's super advanced. So that's the first step is you design the blueprint of what the chip is gonna look like on the software. There's a global duopoly. Um, 
the next step is basically you um, chip chip making has a thousand steps basically, but you can basically break it down into you deposit film onto the silicon onto the wafer and these this film is different chemicals and then you etch away or cut away at that film and then you wash with water and you repeat that you know tons of times there's mm -hmm. it's more complicated than that but you repeat it tons of times so the next step after you you make this blueprint with the software is you do the deposition you deposit this these layers of chemical onto the onto the wafer and there's three companies that make these deposition machines applied materials lamb research and tokyo electron but in deposition applied materials is the industry leader once again an oligopoly um after you have done the deposition then you take the blueprint um that was created with the software and it is shined it it, it it um you use a light source and you project that blueprint through a mask and through a series of mirrors onto the chip and this mask and these series of mirrors shrink down that blueprint to the size of a chip and how it's done is is really um magical it's there's only one company that that provides the light source that is shined through this mask and through these mirrors to, to, to shrink the blueprint down onto the chip. And that's ASML. It's the only company on earth that has this extreme ultraviolet or EUV lithography. And basically it's a tiny wavelength of light that is shined through this mask and these mirrors to trace or stencil the pattern onto the silicon wafer. And the way it works is um, people thought it was impossible. Industry experts thought it was impossible, uh, but ASML figured it out. And a tiny drop of molten tin uh, is hit by uh, carbon, carbon dioxide lasers, CO2 lasers, and the lasers vaporize the molten tin. That tin turns into a ball of plasma shining so bright that it creates this EUV, this extreme ultraviolet light source. Um, the science is so complicated, no other company has been able to figure it out. This, this process of shining these lasers onto the tin, creating this plasma ball of light happens 50,000 times a second. Um, and so the reason EUV, extreme ultraviolet light, is so important is because extreme ultraviolet light has a tiny wavelength of light. It's the wavelength. It's how you get smaller and smaller and smaller. And if you're, if you're putting 20 billion transistors onto a chip, exactly right, those transistors have to be packed really close together. And so the tracing, the stenciling, has to be used with a really small wavelength of light. So we've deposited material. Um, there's an oligopoly of companies that make those machines. We've done the, the lithography, the EUV lithography. There's only one company that makes those machines. They cost about $200 million. Um, and then we have to etch away or carve away at the, at, the, at the deposition to lay down the transistors and then to connect those transistors. There's three companies that make those machines. It's, they're called etching machines. Same three, LAM Research, Applied Material, and Tokyo Electron. But in etch, LAM Research is the leader. And so at each stage of this value chain, you have like monopolies, duopolies, or oligopolies because these companies are so unique and so important. And what they're doing is really bending the laws of physics. It's almost impossible to replicate. Well, I, th I think, I don't know if you're familiar with Arthur C. Clarke, um, the uh, science fiction writer. Sure. Known for his Clarke's three laws. And I think this is perfectly 
the perfect application of his third law that any technology that is sufficiently advanced is indistinguishable from magic. So, <laughs> so industry, you're exactly right. Industry insiders call this process of making a chip, they call it black magic. Yeah. It's, it's really, really complicated. And all of this happens, by the way, at one other company operating a global oligopoly. All of this takes place at a foundry, at a contract manufacturing facility. And the leader there is Taiwan Semiconductor. And so the deposition machines, Taiwan Semi buys them. The etch machines, Taiwan Semi buys them. The um, extreme ultraviolet lithography machines from ASML, Taiwan Semi buys them. They spend the CapEx, they buy them, they put them in these massive facilities, massive facilities, much bigger than a football field. Um, and they, you, they go through these thousands of steps. It's called a recipe. And they make these advanced chips and the process is like magic. And the business model works because if you're Apple or you're Microsoft or you're any one of these companies that's you're Ford, right? Any one of these companies that's utilizing um, semiconductors, even if you're designing them yourself, spending the money just to, to, to build out the cap, spending the capital to build out a facility to manufacture it yourself is, is almost nuts, right? So these companies, these they're called fabless because they don't have fabs for mm -hmm. fabrication facilities. They that's exactly right. They 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 put the capex burden onto Taiwan Semi. Right. It's a mutually exclusive relationship, though. Um, they they Taiwan Semi is getting good economics from this as well. That's the key. We can even it can be cheaper unless you can produce massive volume for your own consumption. It can be cheaper to use to be fabless to use somebody else to manufacture it because when they operate at scale the volumes they can produce right drives down the per unit cost and they can be profitable producing it for cheaper than you could do it if you did it in house that's exactly right that's exactly right um, and then of course the advantage to taiwan semi is um, so the way that these these chips are made when you go from one generation of chip to the next you start with the recipe Mm -hmm. You start with the process knowledge from the prior generation. So to go from seven nanometer to five nanometer, you start with seven nanometer and then you tweak it from there. Right. And so Taiwan Semi has, has done more of these advanced chips than anybody else. So they have more process knowledge than anybody else. And Which is a major competitive advantage. It's a major competitive advantage, Jason. And it's really hard for others to catch up because you can't skip step, you can't skip steps. So Intel is behind now. They have to do seven nanometer. They can't just because they can't figure out how to do five or three without going through that process knowledge and, and learning those steps as they go. So that process knowledge, that IP, the library of recipes that Taiwan Semi and Samsung has built up and Intel to an extent, that it's an amazing competitive advantage. So now that we've got kind of a baseline of knowledge about the different parts of the industry and the levers that are tied to it, let's spend a few minutes. Um, We've already been doing this for about 19 minutes, John. That's amazing. It feels like it's been 19 seconds. This is incredible. If we can spend maybe 10 minutes or so talking about some of the top companies here that you've identified that you like. Two of them um, or three of them I've discussed already. So, so we'll be able to be efficient with, with the 10 minutes we have. ASML mm -hmm. um, is the only company on earth that has figured out extreme ultraviolet lithography. Right. And so... Moore's law says that every two years or so, 
the number of transistors doubles. Um, the only way to double the number of transistors on a chip, if the chip size doesn't change, is, is to shrink the transistors and push them closer and closer together, and then to build these 3D chips and to put them on top of each other. Um, but the only way to do this shrinking is with this really ultraviolet wavelength of light. And so ASML is really the company that has allowed Moore's Law to continue to progress for so long. So ASML has an earned monopoly. Um, it is truly a magical company. They are bending the laws of physics. To catch up with them is gonna be really, really, really hard. LAM Research, I mentioned. Um, and then Taiwan Semi, I mentioned. All unique businesses, as in my opinion, as difficult to replicate as any business as any businesses on earth. I'm not going to say as impossible, but as difficult to replicate as any business on earth. One we haven't discussed yet is Texas Instrument. So the ticker there is TXN. And it once again, back to this theme, it operates in a global oligopoly or duopoly. So Texas Instruments is the largest, excuse me, analog semiconductor company in the world and texas instruments and the number two runner-up player analog devices they control about 50 percent of the global market share for analog chips texas instruments has an extremely diverse um, revenue base because they sell a hundred thousand different products to a hundred thousand different customers they sell more products their product portfolio their menu of products is larger than any other semiconductor company on earth. Um, and they sell to more customers than any other company on earth. 100,000 products, 100,000 customers. So really diverse revenue. The question I get most often with Texas Instruments is, why are they selling these analog chips when everything is going digital and digital is exciting and it's fun? Um, and the reason is because TI is an amazing business. It's run by amazing leadership and they realize that there's this analog paradox at work. Um, and you probably never heard that phrasing before. I don't think you'll read it in Wall Street Research, but there's this analog paradox at work, meaning that as the world shifts to digital, the demand for analog grows oh, in tandem. Yeah. It grows with it because analog right. chips, they they do thing like things like manage the power in your cell phone. Right. So right. your cell phone is a digital device, but you need analog along with it. And so there's only a few companies really doing this at scale. And then the other great thing about analog chips, as the rest of the world is, is tripping over themselves getting into the digital space, um, analog chips have long life cycles. The average, so Texas Instruments is mainly selling chips in, they're mainly focusing on autos and industrials. Mm -hmm. um, the average life cycle for one of their auto chips is seven years. The average life cycle for one of their industrial chips is 10 years. Um, so these chips don't face the risk of technological obsolescence. That and when you say and when you say life cycle, you mean the period of time from when they manufacture the first one to when they manufacture the last one. Yeah, the period of time that that's that's right, or the period of time before that chip sort of goes out of style and it needs to be updated. Right. right. Um, my so my my point is um, as compared to as compared to the the chips that Apple designs and uses, every new iteration of their iPhone has a new process. They're already coming out with the M2. Right. They're, they're, they're already coming out with the M2. So right. they came out with the M1 a year ago. Right. It's exactly right. right. And so there's no risk to Moore's law 
with Texas Instruments. If they don't sell a chip this quarter, it's got a 10-year life, they'll sell it next quarter or next year at a high margin. Mm -hmm. In fact, Texas Instruments is selling chips that were released 30 years ago. So on average, auto chips have about a seven-year life cycle, industrial is about a 10. They're still selling some chips they designed and manufactured 30 years ago. Keyword manufactured, they're vertically integrated. They right. do their manufacturing in-house, unlike digital chip companies for the most part, and unlike their comp uh, competitors. So they are the only analog chip company, only analog chip company, once again, a monopoly when it comes to this, manufacturing chips using 300 millimeter fabrica uh, fabrication, which reduces the cost to manufacture these analog chips by 40%. So they're, they have ultra low cost manufacturing because they do it in-house. Manufacturing through their in-house manufacturing facilities carries incremental gross margins of 70 to 75%. So you see incredible margins, incredible returns on capital from a company like this. And they're the only company manufacturing in-house in their space. It's kind of it's good to be the king, right? I think that's the, <laughs> that's the situation with Texas Instruments. It's exactly right. And, and because they control their supply chain more than their competitors, given the backdrop we're in right now with the shortage in semiconductors, their customers aren't experiencing as much of a shortage because they control yeah. that supply chain. They control, they're vertically integrated. There's some shortage, there's some hotspots, they call them. But for the most part, their customers are getting the chips they need. So it's here's a, it's an a fantastic thing. business. Here's an interesting thing. So every single one of these companies has outperformed the S&P 500 over that period. You know, that, that certainly supports two things. Number one, the trend, the growth, the, the, the tailwind for, for semiconductors. And it does tend to indicate that the market supports you, John, as saying that these are the leaders in this space. Um, so that would hold, if you look at the, like the Philadelphia Semiconductor Manufacturing Index, um, and you go back 10 years, okay? Um, it beats the market 10 years. It beats the S&P. So... My point is it, it, it holds going back further, but just looking at the companies that you mentioned today, the reason, one of the reasons they beat the index, Jason, is because they weren't trading at these valuations that some software, so amazing software companies, and I love them, but these semiconductor companies weren't trading at the valuations some of these software companies were, so they haven't fallen as much, right? And so like, if you look at Texas Instruments, Jason, it's down 10% from its 52-week high. Fastly is down 65%. And so if things aren't falling as much, it helps when, when it comes to outperformance. It does. It does. It's also, it's also a reminder that, to a lesser extent, this asset rotation sell-off that we've seen from some of our more interesting names has still imp impacted this, even this industry, even though we know that there's strong demand. But it's opportunity. I think that's the key, right? Oh, it's, it's opportunity. It's long-term predictability opportunity. and opportunity. The other reason they're outperforming, this is land research. This is from New Constructs. They put out really rigorous calculations of free cash flow and returns on invested capital. Look at land research's returns on invested capital. Gone from 2016 of 21%, trailing 12 months, 54%. The average return on invested capital, which is a measure of profitability and efficiency for the market, is about 12%. Right. So this is a company that's, that's generating returns on invested capital of 54%. So that screams demand, that screams competitive advantage, and that screams amazing economics. Yeah. And oh, by the way, we're really good at capital allocation. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, you look at free cash flow margins, free cash flows over sales. 
17%, 22%, 20%, 26%. I mean, turning 20, you know, 20 cents of every dollar into free cash flow, pretty impressive. Yeah, that's that's incredible. So that's incredible. those are those are numbers to get excited about. You mentioned the demand. Maybe, you know, maybe one thing to talk about from a high level, another reason these stocks and the industry, the Philadelphia Semiconductor Index is outperforming so well, is a thesis for the industry. So they're a critical infrastructure component to the digital revolution. And everything digital is a large and growing market. And so you've got this long-term tailwind. There's no aspect of the modern digital economy that can function without semiconductors, zero. So cloud, artificial intelligence, machine learning, 5G, video games, electric vehicles, autonomous vehicles, wearables, sensors and wearables, the internet of things, automation, robotics, crypto, mining, space travel. There is no aspect of the digital revolution that can exist without semiconductors. And I hear a lot of investors say that um, it's cloud computing that is powering the digital revolution. Well, and I would what's 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 powering cloud computing. Exactly. Exactly, Jason. And I would agree with that. The cloud is a game changer, but it's a slight oversimplification because without semis, there is no cloud. Um, and then you mentioned cyclicality really early. I just want to hit on that really quickly. The industry is cyclical, there's no doubt about it, but much less cyclical in the past than in the past. Three reasons for that. One, now they're going into everything. They used, they used The cycles used to be driven by the PC cycle and the mm -hmm. smartphone cycle. Right. Now they're in everything, including, right. including um, cloud you know, data, data centers and servers and everything. So now they're in everything, that's number one. Number two, um, there's been massive several waves of massive consolidation in the industry, and we're in one of those waves right now. And when an industry consolidates, the remaining players become more rational. Um, and then the third reason you mentioned earlier, now the OEMs themselves, the largest, most profitable, biggest companies in the world are designing their own semiconductors. It's a whole new customer base. Apple, Amazon, Tesla, Google, Microsoft's talking about this. They're all designing their own semiconductors now. So now that market opportunity is so much bigger. Yeah, um, and I think it changes, that also changes the capital allocation model, right? Because if you're no longer designing and building it, you're not really thinking about the capital investment you'll have to make totally. to build that new design. It just totally. completely changes the economics. Totally, totally. And then the final thing we sort of touched on when I shared my screen, um, the fundamentals for semis have been misunderstood for, for a while. I, being better understood, but I still think they're underappreciated. If you look at a, at, a, at a list of the best semiconductor companies and put it up against a list of the best software companies, the co corporate fundamentals are every bit as good for the best semiconductor companies as they are for the best software companies. Um, their profitability and their returns on capital are exceptional. Their growth is not as good as software, but they are definitely growing far above GDP. Um, and if you look at the, the most recent downturn in the cycle was 2018 or 2019, mm -hmm. the trough margins, so the mm -hmm. worse the margins got in the most recent down cycle were better than the prior peak margins. <laughs> that so says it's a tremendous amount. It's a, different, it's a diff different industry. Well, and I think another thing it's worth mentioning too is, is the, the way that the industry has changed seems like it supports more of the stakeholders in a better way, right? So. If you think about it. I think and, so. and that that is an indication that all of those strong economic factors in these businesses and the way that they're operated and the returns that they can generate for investors seems like it predicts that that should continue to prove to be the case. I would agree with that, Jason.
It, I'm not saying they're not cyclical, um, but I think that there's less cyclicality than in the past. I think mm -hmm. they will generate higher margins and higher returns on capital across a cycle than in the past. And I think over a long period of time, they will, as a group, and especially the best players that we discussed here today, will continue to outperform the market. Well, you heard it right here, ladies and gentlemen. I, I think it would be fair to say that a basket of this five great companies in these various parts probably work out pretty well as a good way to invest in semiconductors over the next five to 10 years. I think so. Listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time, Fool on. Thank you.